We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Financial problems, a big part of it, of course. And the Panama Papers, by now we've all heard of them, but what are they? And why are they an issue average American citizens should care about? The second of our two guests today on Keeping Democracy Alive, Isaiah J. Poole writes, The silver lining in the Panama Papers scandal is that the world's attention is being focused on a global problem in which the wealthy and powerful act beyond the reach of law, playing by a different set of rules from the rest of us, end quote. The first of our two guests, Chuck Collins, writes, The just-released Panama Papers, filled with titillating details involving the shady dealings of world leaders and violent traffickers of drugs and slaves, should give a strong boost to U.S. and global campaigns to crack down on these global secrecy jurisdictions and practices, end of quote. And as with any complex matter, the easiest thing to do for many is to just ignore it. It's too complicated. But the facts and overarching truths revealed in the Panama Papers impact each and every one of us. It's about money, in particular how our money, yours and mine, is being taken from us in a so far successful effort used to benefit the super-rich and powerful. More of the same old, same old. And like its namesake predecessor some 40 years ago, the Pentagon Papers, this revelation is indeed a bombshell. And once again, we the people have new ammunition by which we can make real change. As I said, our first guest is Chuck Collins. Chuck, thanks for being with us uh, once again on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Great to be with you, Bert. Well, Chuck is author of 99 to 1, How Wealth Inequality is Wrecking the World and What We Can Do About It. Chuck Collins directs the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality and the common good. With Sam Pizzagatti, he edits inequality.org. Well, again, thanks for being with us. First question, what are the Pentagon Papers? There, I did it. I knew I was going to do it. The Panama Papers. How did they get that name? And how did they come to the surface? Well, uh, the name comes from a Panamanian law firm named Mossack Fonseca, uh, which is the fourth biggest law firm in Panama. And somebody, we don't know who, leaked uh, about 11.5 million documents, which uh, is a huge amount of data. It's maybe, you know, much bigger than the WikiLeaks or uh, Edward Snowden's NSA leaks. 
Uh, and that leak went to a German newspaper uh, that quickly realized there was so much data they needed help, so they pulled in an international consortium of investigative journalists and started to research and the, all the findings. And what they found was uh, a, a record over 40 years of some 215,000 shell corporations that had been created uh, for secrecy purposes to avoid disclosures, uh, avoid saying who the beneficiaries are were of those corporations. And in the first disclosure, in the first public wave uh, that was released, uh, they named 140 names, uh, some very prominent politicians, um, heads of state, uh, athletes, celebrities, yeah. uh, so that world attention is riveted on these these uh, these Panama Papers because of that. And the, the first casualty of the affair is now former Prime Minister of Iceland, uh, Gunnlaugsson. Why did he resign? Is there something unique about Iceland when it comes to economic justice? I, I have a feeling that there may be. Well, the, in this case, it was uh, just a huge political embarrassment that the president of Iceland uh, was linked to a shell corporation uh, that had investments in some of the banks that had obviously contributed to the collapse of the Icelandic economy. And he and his wife had the shell mm. operations, these corporations in the British Virgin Islands. So mm. whether or not his activity was illegal, it was incredibly embarrassing. Um, and, and I should say that right off the front. Some of these, you know, it's not illegal to right. have these shell corporations. Right. But they are often abused to dodge taxes, uh, to launder funds from criminal activity, and to conceal assets. And in this case, if you're a politician and you're benefiting from public policies in your country or in the case of other countries, you're stealing public assets and taking money out of the country. Jeez. You want to conceal that. And <laughs> these offshore corporations make that much more easy to do. And I believe Iceland uh, cracked down on some banksters uh, when, when we have not. They, they seem to uh, care more about uh, honesty when it comes to uh, financial dealings. And, and yeah, they're one of the few countries that have actually jailed yes. uh, bankers for the criminal activities that they were engaged in. Yeah, we reward them, it seems, so far. Maybe that'll change. And as you point out, Chuck, in this first tranche of documents to be released, there were 29 billionaires, for, and I still can't imagine a billion, I mean, a thousand million, what? <laughs> From the Forbes Global Wealth List. Don't the super-rich always look for and often find ways to shelter their income. Is this Panama Papers is somehow unique, or is, or is it uh, fit in with the typical behavior of uh, some super-rich? Well, it's certainly as wealth has concentrated in fewer and fewer hands at the global level, so has there been an acceleration in the use of these offshore uh-huh. banking and corporate you know, systems. Um, we know that in the last 10 years, the number of these corporations has increased, as have the number of countries that advertise themselves as sort of no-reporting tax jurisdictions. There are 90 countries now uh, 
that claim to be tax havens, which is pretty much up from 12 companies in the 19, 12 countries in the 1970s. So, uh, but, and the amount of money now, uh, Gabriel Zuckman estimates that some 8% of the world's wealth is in these tax havens, almost $8 trillion. Uh, other estimates range much higher, from 21 to $30 trillion of global wealth wow. hiding in tax havens. So and- we're just seeing an acceleration of uh, what I would call the hidden wealth of nations. Mm. And uh, as you point out that uh, Gabriel Zuckman uh, you know, tracks uh, the use of, track, of tax havens like this, and I, I found it somewhat uh, interesting that uh, the use of tax havens has grown 25% from 2009 to 2015, and that Americans have at least at least $1.2 trillion taxed or stashed offshore, costing about $200 billion in lost revenue that, of course, the rest of us have to pick up. Why do you think that money deficit grew so much between 2009 and 2015? Might the information in the Panama Papers help answer that question, which could uh, be uh, very beneficial? I think it is going to give us. Uh, uh, it's going to give us some insight into that. It's certainly going to help build the political will. In many ways, yes. this isn't information that's surprising. Uh, many people have been documenting. Uh, the growing abuses of these offshore tax havens. I would say that along with the tax havens, there's also the use of loopholes or private trusts, particularly in the United States, as a way to hide or put money uh, out of the reach of uh, any kind of accountability and taxation. So the more wealth is concentrating in the hands of a few, the more incentives it seems that those few have to shelter their wealth. Boy, I guess isn't there, you know, isn't there enough? Isn't there an idea called enough? You, I mean, how wealthy can you be? I, I, I just, I don't understand that mindset. I think maybe someday uh, psychologists will find some way to treat that uh, pathological condition. It just, I, I don't get it. I mean, I just don't get it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive with the help of our guest, our first guest, Chuck Collins. We're talking about the uh, Panama Papers. And I got to ask, I don't think so far any American politicians have been named. I'm not sure there's even any American uh, uh, business people uh, who have been named on this. So why should we care? Yeah, there's a conspicuous absence of U.S. names on this, and there may be uh, a couple reasons for that. One is they may be waiting to disclose uh, another tranche of prominent people. Uh, these are smart media people, and they understand they sort of can't uh. just let all the data out at once, and they actually maybe haven't analyzed it all. So it may be that there are some U.S. names to come. Oh, boy. It may also be that this one law firm, uh, Mossack Fonseca, primarily served uh, the Eastern Hemisphere elites, and there are other Panamanian law firms that cater to a U.S. clientele. So it may be that it's just this one law firm doesn't have as many U.S. contacts. Uh, it definitely has a European orientation. Its founder, uh, one of the founders was German, one was Panamanian, and they definitely cater to a certain market. Um, we, we know a few U.S. names have shown up. Um, David Geffen, the, oh my. the, the, make, the DreamWorks uh 
entertainment industry executive, Sandy Weil, the former uh, CEO of Citigroup. Uh, but the purposes of their offshore corporations were simply to hold their yachts. Um, and so that isn't considered a criminal activity per se. Uh, they just were maybe avoiding the embarrassment of having people knowing that they had 200-foot long yachts. Um, so I expect that we will see some more U.S. disclosures uh, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, interesting. And as you say, the use of these offshore systems is, is not always illegal. But if they're not illegal, uh, what what is what is wrong with, with them? And you know, what, if if it's completely legal, what the heck? So if the activity revealed in the Panama Papers is legal, um, so what? Are you there? Yes. Uh, I'm, ju- I'm just. That's part of your question. There. Yeah, yeah. I'm just. I'm just asking. Uh, you know, if it's not illegal, what's what's wrong with them? Really? I mean, you know, people like tax shelters. Wealthy people. Well, always I do. think that. The, the the question is, there should be some greater transparency. Uh, you know, the, the people who've looked at the Panama Papers find that the main driver of this is concealing identity, concealing the true uh-huh. owners. Uh, and many of that, many for the reason of, they're often using exotic forms of tax reduction. Um so part of it's just transparency uh, that, uh, you know, and, and here's where it's the gray area of the law. It is against the law to create a corporation for the purposes, a subsidiary uh, of a U.S. corporation, entirely for the purposes of tax reduction or tax avoidance. Um, but uh, what you find is people will say, well, we're creating this corporation because we want to have a subsidiary in the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands. Uh, we have some business there. They actually don't have no. <laughs> much business there, but no. they're using this as a pretense. Uh, or what you're seeing with a lot of corporations is they create a subsidiary in Ireland uh, to hold their intellectual property or their patents. Uh, this is the case with Pfizer Drug Company. Uh, and here's a country or countries that have low or no income tax on royalty income. So they, per- they create the fiction that all their property, their valuable assets that have royalty income, are based in other countries. And the Apple business as well, Apple Corporation. You know, the patents behind yeah. your iPhone are held by foreign subsidiaries, and so then they end up paying those subsidiaries uh, lots of money that doesn't actually get taxed. So, you know, it, it, it skirts the law, and it certainly skirts the intention of the law. And it sounds like, if I have this right, Chuck Collins, that uh, if these interests like Apple and uh, Geffen and others uh, are not paying what really is their fair share of taxes— that money has to come from somewhere. So it seems like, you know, the rest of the country is making up for taxes that these incredibly wealthy people should be paying. And that, I think, is why people should care. And for our listeners who may not know Chuck Collins, uh, 
he, as I say, directs the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality and the common good. Longtime fighter for uh, tax fairness uh, and uh, really uh, focused like a laser, if I may, on uh, on this inequality and uh you know, fair taxes and works with some, uh, there are quite a few millionaires, wealthy people who want to pay their fair share of taxes. And and this is some, some great work that uh, Chuck Collins does. It's really uh, important work. And I wanted to ask you, Chuck, in this year's presidential campaign, trade agreements have increasingly come into focus. In a recording I'm about to play, and I hope you can hear Chuck, uh, we'll hear the voices of Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders speaking in 2011, five years ago, on opposite sides of the U.S.-Panama Free Trade Agreement, which enabled uh, this kind of uh, uh, operation to exist. Before I play the audio, I should point out that Hillary Clinton had opposed the deal in 2008 when she was running again against then-Senator Barack Obama. But in an abrupt outface, uh, about-face, she helped push the agreement through Congress when she was Secretary of State. This is about uh, two minutes here, and you'll hear the voices again of uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders on opposite sides of this issue. Let me say a word about the Panama Free Trade Agreement. One of our top goals is to complete free trade agreements with Colombia and Panama. Now, Panama is a very small country. Its entire uh, annual economic output is only $26.7 billion a year, or about two-tenths of 1% of the American economy. So I think no one is going to legitimately stand up here and say that trading with such a small country uh, is going to significantly increase American jobs. And that would translate into some 70,000 new jobs for American workers. Panama is a world leader when it comes to allowing wealthy Americans and large corporations to evade U.S. taxes by stashing their cash in offshore tax havens. We have worked with our Panamanian and Colombian partners to address key concerns. A tax haven has one of three characteristics. It has no income tax or a very low rate income tax. It has bank secrecy laws, and it has a history of non-cooperation with other countries on exchanging information about tax matters. Panama has all three of those, and they are probably the worst. Panama passed important new laws on labor rights and tax transparency. The trade agreement with Panama would effectively bar the United States from cracking down on illegal and abusive offshore tax havens in Panama. In fact, combating tax haven abuse in Panama would be a violation of this free trade agreement exposing the U.S. to fines from international authorities. Today, I'm happy to report we are making great progress. Some of us believe that it is a good idea to do away with all of these tax havens. I don't know. Could you hear that, uh, Chuck? Yes. I don't know if you have any... uh... that you played that because, you know, one of the things is the United States could use our international treaty process to promote transparency, to require countries like Panama to have disclosure of what we call the beneficial owners, meaning you have to say who's the real person behind a corporation or a bank account. And the United States has used our leverage 
with the Swiss banks. Uh, the Department of Justice has developed, you know, 80 different agreements with banks in Switzerland. They've paid, you know, $1.3 billion in penalties since 2008. So we can use our leverage, but when you have a free trade agreement like the Panama Agreement, uh, where you essentially tie the hands of, of uh, international transparency, it has the opposite effect. So I think that's a, a good example of how politics and public policy is worsening uh, the, the offshore problem. Fascinating. I don't. I, I wonder if. Uh, what do you think, Chuck? I mean, the. Uh, how do you think this issue might affect? competition between Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton. Is it, is it too dense for people to get, do you think? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's fairly complex, but the issue of trade uh, certainly has come up a lot more. And, and looking at the trade agreements, Bernie Sanders has made uh, the issue of trade agreements uh, one of the central points of his campaign. What do you think? How might the, this issue affect the competition in the Democratic Party and then uh, possibly in the general election, uh, assuming it's either Trump or Cruz or uh, Kasich? Well, I should say in the uh, Mitt Romney-Barack Obama election, the fact that Mitt Romney had offshore tax haven accounts in the Cayman Islands sort of contributed to that sense that he was an out-of-touch, uh, uber Uber wealthy guy who who was lived in a different world than the rest of us. Uh-huh, yeah. uh, in this case, I think unless there are really prominent U.S. disclosures, uh, it may not rise to become uh, an issue of major debate. I mean, it should. Yeah. But let's say there are some disclosures uh, uh, about U.S. prominent U.S. people, prominent donors to campaigns. Mm. then this issue moves very quickly to the center of the debate. Uh, who has, you know, Senator Sanders has had uh, decades of railing against these offshore abuses, uh, opposing the free trade treaties that, that have uh, enabled them. Uh, and uh, Secretary Clinton, you know, probably she herself may not have offshore accounts, but, you know, if those were to come to light, that would obviously... yeah. Uh, be a big issue. You know, we know that Senator Sanders has made these issues of growing inequality really central yes. to his campaign, and this is a great example of, of the power of wealthy elites uh, to protect uh, vast amounts of wealth. So I, I have a hope that as the disclosures continue to roll forward, this will get more and more uh, play and discussion uh, at the national level and in the, in the election finals. And just just for a little bit of clarification, the Panama free trade uh, Panama uh, deal that happened in 2011 that the U.S. did sign over Bernie uh, Sanders' objection. Do you think that contributed to this uh, situation in particular? Uh, you know, outsourcing of jobs and you know having laws that that benefit the the super rich at the expense of everybody else, or was it kind of different from that? You know. Uh I don't know about the impact on jobs, but, uh, you know, we have seen U.S. companies slowly over the last couple decades move more subsidiaries, move more jobs offshore. But here's an interesting thing. If, you, if you've not looked at a picture of Panama City any time in the last 10 years, I would urge you and your listeners just to Google 
a picture of Panama City. Uh, it has become the center of banking for Central America. And there are these huge skyscrapers. Skyscrapers. It looks like Dubai. And the, the word is that two-thirds of those buildings are empty. They're shells, just like the corporations that have offices. Oh, my. Uh, there's billions of wealth. Now, where has that wealth come from? Whose wealth is that? How do you build you know, row after row of skyscrapers and luxury condominiums that are not occupied. That wealth, some of that wealth, came from the United States. And one has to wonder, I mean, my impression of Panama City was not as you just painted it, quite frankly. I, I assume that, like most of Central America, there's not a lot of great wealth there. I mean, you know, traditionally there were a few, you know, aristocratic families, I wonder uh, if this has benefited the people of Panama generally. I tend to doubt it. Uh, interesting where the money is. Well, Chuck Collins, thanks so much for being with us today once again. I uh, appreciate uh, all your great work through the years. If people are interested in, in following uh, your efforts, what uh, website can you point them to? Well, I recommend people visit inequality.org uh, as sort of a portal of commentary and analysis, and you'll see a, a number of resources there. I'd also uh, recommend a film that you can find online called We're Not Broke, which is a documentary about how the offshore system works that uh, I helped work on. And it tells the story of U.S. Uncut, which was the last, uh, maybe 2011, there was a really great movement in the United States protesting offshore tax dodgers like Verizon and Apple and Bank of America. So that film, We're Not Broke, tells the story of that organizing, and clearly we have to revive it again. Uh, we do. We have the power, whether we know it or not. Thank you so much for being with us and doing your part, as we all must, to keep democracy alive. Thanks, Chuck Collins. Stay with us, sure. listeners, and uh, we'll be back uh, after this short break. Take from Derek and the Dominoes. Seems like a fitting song. Tell the truth. Yeah, we need to tell the truth. Well, thanks for sticking with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here. Our next guest, I'm very pleased to have back with us again, Isaiah J. Poole. Thank you for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. That's my pleasure. 
Well, Isaiah Poole has been the editor of OurFuture.org since 2007. Previously, he worked for 25 years in the mainstream media, most recently at Congressional Quarterly, where he covered congressional leadership and tracked major bills through Congress. His work has put him at the front lines of ideological battles between progressives and conservatives, and probably progressives and right-wingers, too, these days, who aren't really conserving anything. He also served as a founding member of the Washington Association of Black Journalists and the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. Well, before this Panama Papers, uh, no one ever heard of a business called Mossack Fonesca. What are they and what do they do? Well, this company, this, uh, this firm is among a number of firms around the world that uh, uh, will basically set up if you, are, if, you, if you have enough money, if you have money that you want to keep out of the eyes of, uh, of a government, uh, Hmm. Uh, they will set you up with, um, you know, it's, it, it can be something as simple as a uh, basic corporation with a post office box in uh, a tax haven, or it could be something very elaborate. Uh, if you recall um, uh, a 60 Minutes episode that was done uh, a few weeks ago, uh, which explored... Uh, uh, some law firms here in the United States that engage in this, uh, where they will, you can go in and you say, I want to create this company, I want it in a tax haven, um, and uh, they will set you up with a shadow board of directors, mm. uh, everything. And then you could use the company to funnel money through it, funnel transactions through it. Uh, you could basically do whatever you want with it. And, um, as I'm sure Chuck Collins uh, pointed out earlier, um, because you don't need to have your name publicly attached to it, then the money that goes through this account, the transactions that go through those accounts, uh, can't be uh, tracked back to you. Uh, How sweet. That's really nice of them. And I guess it doesn't actually cost all that much money uh, to deal with uh, Mossack Fonesca, and uh, it leverages a heck of a lot of uh, tax savings. Well, exactly. Uh, there was actually uh, the Institute for Policy Studies had uh, disclosed in a report that they released a few months ago uh, that you could set these up for as little as $1,000. That's, that's amazing. And save, who knows, I mean, untold amounts of money. That's that's uh, pretty amazing. It sounds uh, very attractive if someone... Uh, Oh, has a billion or so dollars, and and you know feels like everybody else should pick up the tab for them. What the heck? Why should uh, you know play everybody? They should play everybody else for suckers, not them. <laughs> well, but uh, that but that gets to the to the funnel, one of the fundamental problems with this, which is that you know there there are two sets of rules. Uh, I as an individual can't set up a, a dummy corporation and have my employer funnel my paycheck through that corporation so that uh, I don't have to pay my federal and state and local taxes, uh, that that that, that money doesn't get tracked. Um, I don't get to do that, but these other folks do. And that's a fundamental problem. Yeah, I'll say it is. All right, boy, it really is. If I just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, 
doing my part to keep democracy alive. Keeping democracy alive is the name of the show. Our guest on this uh, portion of the show is Isaiah Poole. We're talking more about the Panama Papers and how big it is, what it is, how significant it is. And of course, information in the 21st century is power. Probably, you know, it's the oil of the 19th and 20th century. Information is power. How does the work of Mossack Fonseca affect information collected by state governments on these wealthy entities as compared to the information gathered from and about regular citizens? Well, you know, again, you know, it's, it's, it's if um, uh, I set up a corporation, but I, uh, I don't have to put my name on that corporate, on that, on that corporate document, or my name is not publicly disclosed on that public document, uh, I can funnel all kinds of stuff through it. And no one, uh, no, certainly no government entity uh, would get to know that. But keep in mind that we would not know who was involved in this, who was dealing with this Panama-based firm if it were not for the fact that there was basically a mole well, yeah. I believe to be a mole inside the company who did this huge data dump uh, and then uh, allowed uh, a group of investigative journalists uh, at select news organizations to go through the data. Now, but in terms of the state governments, they have, they have an interest in getting information about people. I mean, the state, uh, any state that you live in, uh, you know, they, they gather information about you for your driver's license, for uh, loans, for, for many, many different things. And yet, uh, for this stuff, the state governments, never mind the federal government, they're frozen out of the picture. That's, that's some clever work. Well, there, there, are, there are competing interests by state governments, uh, and it, it depends on who's pulling the political levers. Um, the, a lot of states, Delaware notably, uh, North Dakota True. notably, but a number of other states, uh, compete on the basis of being able to collect fees from corporations, and they're, they're very modest. Uh, you know, they may be almost nothing, actually. Yeah, true. But the idea is that you can, you know, compete on the basis of being, quote-unquote, business-friendly. And so you have very low regulatory barriers and very low disclosure barriers. The impetus has been to make it as easy as possible to incorporate a company, right. and which is why... Uh, there, you know, there's so many businesses uh, incorporated in a place like Delaware, for yes. example. What makes Delaware so special? Uh, nothing much, uh, <laughs> not, with all due respect to your <laughs> listeners who may be in Delaware, um, who think the state may be lovely. But uh, the thing that makes Delaware so special for corporations sure. is that they really gre- grease the skids to make it easy for you to incorporate and don't require much in terms of, of, of disclosure. It just fascinates me so much that it seems like there's one set of rules for, you know, 305 million people, but another few million people have their own special set of rules that they get to play by with the help of places like Delaware. No offense to Delaware people. I liked your Senator Biden, uh, but, well, anyway, uh, there there's an entity that comes up in the Panama Papers called the Podesta Group, P-O-D-E-S-T-A Group, which 
uh, might be related to the Hillary Clinton campaign. I think they're actually uh, being paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign. What do we know about the Podesta group? What are they all about? The Podesta group, what they've done. Now, John Podesta, as you just pointed out, has had a long-time relationship with Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Center for America Progress, which uh, was a, an organization uh, that uh, uh, John Podesta ran for a number of years, in fact, uh, sort of was a uh, served as sort of a think tank for the Clinton machine. Uh, once the Clintons got out of government, uh, we often think of uh, groups like Think Progress as as uh, coming out of that, but. For, for those uh, 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 people who follow progressive uh, blogs and media. But the uh, uh, John Podesta, the money that he raised, has supplied a lot of the intellectual infrastructure for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, and uh, they have a lot, the Podesta group has, relationships with some of the largest corporations in the country, from Walmart uh, to uh, uh, General Dynamics, uh, Heineken, you know, uh, just a, a, a really long list of, of, of corporate interests that, that they have uh, come, uh, become tied to over the years. Well, so it definitely does raise red flags when you see the Podesta group uh, implicated in the Panama Papers. Yeah, it certainly does. And, uh, you know, there's a few months left of the campaign. It's been pretty hot already. I imagine it's going to get even hotter. Now, there's the government of, of Panama, uh, which I guess is uh, making out fairly nicely from this, but our own government enables the creation and preservation of so-called shell corporations here at home. And and doesn't fight countries that enable them uh, when we negotiate trade agreements. Uh, are they actually about, I mean, they've been going on for a long time, this, uh, you know, government uh, it's kind of helping, really. Uh, the, the tax codes help uh, uh, people, or interests, I should say, uh, uh, corporate persons, perhaps, uh, set up uh, these uh, shell corporations. Are they... These corporations, are they actually about trade of goods and services, or are they about something else? And I wonder if the IRS is aware of this and just does a, a wink and a nod and, and, and lets, it hap lets these things happen. What do we know about these shell corporations that are involved in the trade agreements? Well, uh, you, you, you've raised a couple of points there, and, and, and first of all, in order for an organization like the IRS to uh, make sure that it's collecting the taxes that is due, that it is on top of the money flows, and the Treasury Department, which has a role in making sure that you know when we move money around the financial system, that we're doing it for legal uh, purposes. We're not. You know, doing engaging in money laundering, we're not you know facilitating terrorists or anything like that. So, in order for those organizations, uh, uh, those government entities, to enforce the law, uh, they need basic information. They need to know that um, 
you know, this dollar that Isaiah Poole is handing over to someone else is, in fact, Isaiah Poole's money, and it's Isaiah Poole that's handing over the money. Um, and that's why there is a push right now in Congress for a, a, a transparency law, and, which would say that when you incorporate a business, you have to attach your name to it. It sounds real simple. Yes. But, you know, it's, in, you know, but that's, uh, you should be at least provide as much ID to set up a corporation in the United States that's going to engage in millions of dollars worth of transactions. As Republicans are demanding uh, to uh, cast a ballot, it is literally easy to set up a multi-million dollar shell corporation in most of states in the United States than it is to get a, a voter ID card so you can vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Democracy ain't a swell. Wow. That that is. Uh, wow. So there there is this lobbying push that's going on right now to uh, uh, pass uh, something called the Incorporation Transparency and Law Enforcement Assistance Act. Yes. Uh, which would uh, just simply uh, impose that basic disclosure requirement. And that would go a long way. Now, the second point you make about trade agreements, yeah. uh, this is another thing. You, you point out uh, the debate that we had uh that Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were a part of uh, about the Panama-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. Right, back in 2011. It, right. And uh, we had an opportunity um, at that time to say to Panama, listen, if you want to be a full trading partner with us, then you should impose some transparency requirements on these shell corporations that are being created in your country. Um, and we did not do that. Hmm. And a Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is, yeah. which is sitting on President Obama's desk right now and uh, is going to uh, likely to go to Congress uh, for uh, an up, and down, or up or down vote hmm. at, at some point. Oh, wow. uh, there was an opportunity there to say, you know, we need to uh, take some action to uh, address these shell corporations. Trans-Pacific Partnership does not effectively do that. No, and the issue of trade has not generally been, you know, on, on most people's radar. I do think it's coming up a lot more this year because, as you mentioned, Isaiah, it seems like, you know, oftentimes the, the trade deals that are done benefit uh, you know, the big businesses, the super powerful in the countries that we're trading with as well as our own, but oftentimes are very, very bad for the average working person here in the United States. We think of NAFTA, for example, which was very one-sided, which which caused uh, a lot of jobs to flow overseas. I, I know uh, Bill Clinton was very much in favor of that. I have to assume that Hillary Clinton was. And you know, which brings up, don't we need to set parameters or or is it presumptuous of the United States to say, hey, we're not going to trade with you unless this and that? Will that limit our trade substantially? Could it cut down on jobs if we put, uh, you know, some kind of parameters and require, say, you know, human rights 
you know, no slave labor. You can't use child labor. There has to be decent environmental conditions. Would that uh, adversely affect the U.S.? And would that be uh, overly presumptuous of us to say, well, we're not going to trade with you unless you play by, by our rules? What do you think, Isaiah Poole? Well, listen, we are the leading economy in the world. And so any country that is engaged wants to be in the international marketplace has to deal with the United States. If corporations, corporations take the positions, especially large corporations, use their size as an advantage. We should use our size as an advantage and our position as a global economic power. Um, And we have an obligation, in fact, uh, to use our position as a global economic power to say that uh, we have standards of fairness, we have standards of uh, wanting to protect the, the, the planet that we live on, mm-hmm. uh, protecting our environment. That uh, all of these things, uh, you know, we have. Uh, both the power and the obligation to exercise. So I don't accept it as an excuse that, oh, if we get too tough, uh, we demand too much, people are going to walk away. I don't accept that at all. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is uh, Isaiah Poole, and uh, he's written about the uh, the subject and some great work on it as well. And uh you know, getting back a little bit to, you know, people having their names attached to these uh, entities, there have always been, or for a very long time, things called limited liability corporations, which enable people to do business and, and protect themselves legally. How is this stuff different from, from that tradition, or is it not different? The limited liability corporation um, is, the way I understand the law, it, 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 there are certain aspects of, of the limited library, uh, liability corporation that won't uh, uh, be compromised. I mean, there are some, some good things that happen from that uh, in terms of protecting a person's personal assets from, uh-huh, from sure. being embroiled in a corporate dispute. Um, that doesn't fundamentally change. What what does fundamentally change is the abuse of things like the LLC concept uh, to uh, hide uh, assets uh, for uh, not always illegal purposes, but right. certainly uh, certainly could be for legal purposes. We just don't know. Yeah, it's got to come out there. So this. This is a potential solution, this Incorporation Transparency and Law Enforcement Assistance Act. Who Who is sponsoring this, and, and what do you think its chances are? What would it really accomplish? Well, uh, in the Senate, uh, the, one of the leaders is Congressman uh, uh, Senator uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's uh, from Rhode Island. Yes. Uh, in the House, uh, the champions include uh, Carolyn Maloney, who's a uh, uh, New York uh, congresswoman. Um, well, and I don't, I, I, I don't think in this con- in this particular Congress. Uh, of course, 
very little is happening in this yeah, particular Congress. That's for sure. Um, I'm following uh, the budget discussions, and uh, the, the House of Representatives can't even agree uh, to put a U.S. government, a federal budget, on the floor of the House. That's mm. how bad it's gotten. The Republicans <laughs> can't agree on their own budget. <laughs> so the fact that we can have something uh, this important with uh, uh the corporate interests that are involved, getting that through this Congress, uh, I think is going to be a very high bar. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's very, <laughs> but I think it's very important that we do just what you're doing on your show, which is educating people about the issue, getting people talking about it. We have a presidential debate, and I think there's a fair likelihood that uh, the president candidates, Democratic presidential candidates, will be asked about it. The Republican presidential candidates should certainly be asked about it the next time they have a debate. And uh, I would suggest that uh, your listeners get on Twitter, those who have Twitter accounts, Mm -hmm. get on Twitter and demand uh, that the media press the presidential candidates on where they stand on this. Absolutely. It's it's got to be done. And, you know, if somehow this bill became law, I, I wonder what things might look like, how meaningful it might be, how, how it might affect the ability to, to really tackle America's needs. Uh, because we're talking about uh, revenue, for example, here. And I, I wonder about uh, you know new resources to develop a new energy policy, repair our crumbling infrastructure. Uh, and have, I wonder how better trade policies might help the creation of jobs in the United States. What do you think, Isaiah Poole? Well, uh, we just posted on our website a a, uh, a video with uh, a uh, person from the, uh, uh, her name, in fact, is Porter, Porter McConnell. She's the director of the Financial Transparency Coalition. And the Financial Transparency Coalition uh, thinks that there is as much globally as 26 Seven trillion dollars oh hidden god. in these shell companies. Oh my god! I can't. Uh, even, wow. Twenty-seven. And trillion. you know that you know way mm. more than the, the the gross national product of a whole bunch of countries. Yes. Um, so you're talking about a global impact of this money comes out of the shadows. You're not ta- not just talking about the United States right. being in a better position to uh, uh, receive the, the, you know, the, the tax uh, revenues from that hidden money and then being able to use that to sort of uh, repair our infrastructure. And really, as I often say, set things up so that cor- corporations and, uh, can, can profit. Uh, but we're talking about a global Yes. Uh, we're talking about the global wealth here. Yes. It's about 27... Uh, the amount of money that is just lost, just in terms of the ability of, of, of uh, governments around the world to uh, tax this money and then use it for their own internal needs, yeah, really? that's about seven times what, global, what developing countries get in terms of development assistance from various sources, including our own taxpayers. Wow. So, so many lives, so many lives could be affected by this if we were to to tackle it and isaiah pull this is interesting and i always love a little bit of optimism you say 
The silver lining in the Panama Papers scandal is that the world's attention is being focused on a global problem in which the wealthy and powerful act beyond the reach of law, playing by a different set of rules from the rest of us. What do you mean by this nice, optimistic note? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's true. I mean, we are we are we we are we're trying to keep the drum beat up. Uh, there there are a number of us. We've posted, as I said, uh, uh, actually the yeah. I think about three videos on our burning issues uh, series of videos, mm. uh, which are on is on our website ourfuture.org. And if you go to our homepage, you'll, you'll see uh, a Burning Issues panel on our homepage. You can click through to see all of the videos that we've posted. Yeah. Um, but what we've been able to do is feature a number of people who have been working on this issue actually for years, hmm. who are now uh, being able to... Uh, now they have the spotlight on their work and we're able to elevate it. Um, I think as this uh, issue continues, it sort of adds fuel to the whole tax reform debate really? uh, that has been going on for years. Um, and the more we talk about it, the more uh, wow. presidential candidates will either, uh, as Bernie Sanders has done, say... You know, look, this is an issue that we need to to uh, clamp down on once and for all. Or we'll have, uh, as I expect Republicans will say, they will either fudge or say that it's not important, uh, this is just a left-wing whatever, (laughs) could be dismissed. But people will see where they stand. I think in this particular uh, populist moment, this this moment of of upheaval, the uh, people are going to, uh, people are fed up with how the system is rigged. And this is the kind of thing uh, that, uh, as people understand it more and more, is it just fuels the narrative that the, the rich have the system rigged against the rest of us, and it's unfair, we need to bring back balance, we need to bring back uh, uh, a system in which everyone plays by the same set of rules. Yeah, it does kind of uh, lend itself right to that uh, that narrative that has been really catching fire. I'm, I'm getting a sense that somehow actual democracy might be revitalized in the wake of the revelations of the Panama Papers that they're making such a splash. What actions can people take now? Obviously, go to uh, the website, uh, of which you are the editor, uh, ourfuture.org, and uh, what what can people do? Um, they can they can uh, in addition to that uh, tell the member of Congress to to uh, pass this very simple transparency law. And um, is there a bill through Congress? It should it should be pushed through their their. Um, uh, similar laws uh, should be passed on the state level as well. Ah. I mean, I think a lot of action, and, and we're seeing this increasingly, Fight for 15 is a perfect example, that things that get blocked on the federal level can nonetheless be pushed at the state level. And sometimes the state action needs to happen first, hmm. and the federal government catches up. So I think we have to operate on two fronts. We have to make this a state and local issue. If you happen to live in a state 
where people can just walk in off the street, uh, set up a dummy uh, a shell company uh, with very little transparency. Um, say to your state legislature, we don't want to play that game anymore. Yeah, it can be done, and I, I don't, I'm not sure it's left and right so much as you know. Average people are recognizing, hey, as you say, uh, Isaiah Poole, you know, there's one set of rules for the top and a different set of rules for everybody else. And people are getting that. People are absolutely getting that. So there might be a real silver lining. Well, thanks so much for being with us and shedding so much light on this. Isaiah J. Poole, editor of OurFuture.org, and a very, very interesting website. And uh, there's a lot we can do on this to to really affect uh, economic justice and revitalize democracy. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. All right. Tell the truth. 